are grateful that Christ is blessing the work. I was telling the office staff about that in our meeting a couple of days ago. We have had a number of very fine offerings in this month. We've had more offerings from different places, just special big offerings above and beyond this month than at any time, I guess, since the work began. So we're very grateful. We, we haven't had any Raymond Jorgensen Iowa farms yet this month, but the month is not over. <laughs> so anyway, we're, we're very grateful for that. And we're grateful, as Mr. King pointed out, I had this in my notes before they got read his comment, but the love world over there in Britain is producing such wonderful fruit. And we thank God for that because we do need to reach the British people, the mother country of America, and they are so irreligious. And, of course, so many people over in Britain don't go to church. This uh, professor, some of you may have read his editorial in the Charlotte Observer a few days ago. He teaches here at University of North Carolina in Charlotte. But he was kind of putting us down because we're too religious. And he thought that would hurt our science classes here in the city and that type of thing. But he said in his country, why only out uh, one out of 25 people attend church? And that's about right. About 4%, one out of 25 people go to church over there. They're very irreligious. And, of course, God is not going to bless them at all for that. And uh, he's not blessing them. And they're going to go on down just as we will, too. We have more people going to church but it doesn't do a lot of good because they're not hearing the truth in their churches. And the fruit is more adultery, more fornication, more drug addicts, more drunkenness, more immorality all through our nation. And so we have to look at the overall fruit. But we're very grateful we're able to reach Britain now, and uh, not as much as we are the states, but almost as much perhaps through Love World and the uh, other network we're on over there as well. So we're grateful for the new prospective members that are coming in. Mr. King mentioned there are a number of new prospective members attending already, and uh, that recently they had over 50 people there in the London church attending. And I know when my wife and I were first going over several years ago, we just had about 16 or 17, something like that. And now it's grown about three times. So Mr. King is doing a great job. And God is doing, Christ is, our living head is doing a great job adding these uh, networks and all these things to bring these people along too. So we can be thankful that our little work is having increasing impact. But brethren, again, as I told the office staff, we need to be concerned about six and one half billion, with a B, human beings out there who have still not heard our message. <laughs> and they don't know very much about God they don't know why we're here. They don't know where we're going. You heard about this, uh, whatever his name, Keith Ledger or some guy that played in this Brokeback Mountain movie, and he killed himself, apparently, in New York with whatever kind of pills he was taking recently. Why did these Hollywood people keep killing themselves? Why did the rock stars continually, even more than others, keep killing themselves? They don't know the purpose of life. They look around, they think, what have I done? And maybe he felt guilty about playing, playing this terrible part in Brokeback Mountain. We don't know. I never see that, saw that movie. You don't intend to. But I've read about it, about a, uh, some homosexuals loving each other. So they try to make these cowboys up in Montana do that. Well, cowboys up in Montana practically never do that. If you've been there, they don't think that way. They're in the out of doors. They're in nature. But Hollywood has a way of projecting its own ideas all around and poisoning our society. But we need to be aware, brethren, of why we're here and what we ought to be doing. We must go beyond just being nice church people. Many of you are nice church people. 
And many of the brethren around the world and various groups are nice church people. But we've got to go above and beyond that. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, if you would. I normally read the part about the Sardis church and the Philadelphia church. But I'm going to turn to begin in verse 14 here where he talks about Laodicea. Let's not assume that none of us are affected by Laodicea. Dr. Herman Hay said years ago, decades ago, a number of times over the years, that the church of God even reflects the society around it. We don't totally reflect it, of course, if we're the church of God, but it still has an impact on us. And if every time you punch the button, you see adultery, fornication, it may make it look not quite so bad in some of these programs, you sense lying and exaggeration and double talk, and you sense people that are not right in so many, many ways, it has an effect. It begins to sear your conscience, for the devil can raise the bar a little bit, and then a little bit more, and then a little bit more, or push up the volume, perhaps I should say, and lower the bar may be a better way of putting it. And we tend to go along with that without realizing it. And so we're living at the end of the age, and the last church era God himself describes and we have Laodiceans among us, and all of us, me, you, every one of us in this room is affected by it, whether we like to admit it or not, by this spirit. There is an angel, a spirit, kind of guiding each church era. And we can go into that, how there are spirits, and these things do have an effect. The angel of the church of the Laodiceans write to, to him, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, he says, I know what I'm talking about. Christ is the true witness. The beginning, or the or it ought to be in the Greek, the originator. That Greek word can be translated begin, er, or originator. By the way, some people misinterpret this. Not that Christ was created. He was the originator of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. You're not bad. You're not out there in terrible, drunken parties or drug parties or killing people, but you're not cold, you're not out there like that, nor are you hot. You're not on fire. I could wish that you were cold or hot. Christ does not necessarily, is not necessarily happy, I'll put it that way, with people that are just nice church people, even in God's church. So then, because you are lukewarm, you attend church and you're around and you show up and you have your Sabbath smile, and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Wow, that's not me talking. I'm quoting Jesus Christ, the one who died for you and me. Because you say I'm rich and become wealthy, and some of our brethren and other fellowships and some of us may feel that without realizing it as well, and we've got to understand that. I'm rich and increased with goods. We can be grateful for the work we are doing. And yet realize we are absolutely tiny, as I've said so many times. And I'm very aware, brethren, I want you to know that, that we are a half a peanut shell in the Pacific Ocean, using my analogy as I've used so many times over the years. That's all we are. I know that. Some of you might think, boy, Mr. Mary's got all these people in this church as the human leader. But that doesn't impress me at all. I know how weak I am, first of all. And I also remember all those years in Big Sandy at the feast and Lake of the Ozarks, and Wisconsin Dells, and Poconos, where we had twelve to 14,000 people 
And sometimes you just feel the roar coming back if you tell a joke or make a special point. We don't have that in the whole church. And we'd have that in one feast site, several feast sites, 10 to 15,000 people at once. And I was in that era preaching in those places regularly. So if we have five or 600 or 11 or 1,200 as we did at the feast down in Myrtle Beach last year, that's encouraging. Well, I sure can't get the big head about that. And I know our older members remember how much bigger we were in the past. We're still tiny. So let's not get the big head about anything and let's not coast on our laurels about anything. If you say I'm rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, you're spiritually naked, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire. I could preach a whole sermon on that, but most of you know, like in 1 Peter 4 and several other places, he talks about going through the fiery trials. And when he says gold refined in the fire, that obviously means I'm counseling you folks who are laid to sin, you'd better be willing to go through terrible trial and perhaps the great tribulation so you can wake up. It's better to wake up even in trial, even in prison, even in torture, that not to wake up at all. That's the point. I counsel you to go through this fiery trial that you may be rich, really rich, and white garments, really clean, pure character, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, you need eye, eye medicine, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So again, he's referring, no doubt, to individual chastisement. He gives you and he gives me. But the big chastisement will be the coming great tribulation on people that are so smug and so self-satisfied. And they're superior in some way. They think they're superior ones or whatever they think. So I rebuke and chasten every son. Therefore, be zealous. Don't be lukewarm. Be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's knocking on the outside of some of these churches and some of these church people. Please wake up. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. You can have fellowship with Christ if you really open your life to Christ and surrender to him and repent. To him who overcomes, and of course the Greek word can mean conquers, if you overcome yourself, if you conquer yourself, conquer the world through Christ in you, of course, conquer Satan, then what happens? I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and am set down with my Father on His throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the Holy Spirit speaking and warning all of us at the end of an age that this is the attitude of smugness, of complacency, or nice church people we come but we're not on fire, and we don't really have that much impact in many cases individually if we're not on fire, and the church as a whole doesn't have as much impact as we would have as a church if we had more people that were not lukewarm and were, in fact, all of us really on fire. So we need to think and pray about that. Turn back to John chapter 15, if you would, the Gospel of John, and I'm going to be turning here to chapter 15, a very familiar place, but we need to understand it and apply it, of course, to ourselves uh, at this time. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Jesus said, I am the vine, and you are, uh, I'm sorry, and my Father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. You say, well, I'm bearing some fruit. Some of you attend church most of the time and you're friendly to others. And may you, maybe you pay your tithe and barely pay it and offering. Some don't even do that that are sitting right here. But you say, I bear a little bit of fruit. But is Christ satisfied with you barely getting by just a little bit of fruit? Or are you pouring out your life, your heart, your mind, your prayers, your resources, every bit of your time and strength that you can toward the kingdom of God and putting the kingdom of God first, way above everything else? Every bench in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, but he hasn't taken us all away. Every branch that bears fruit, but too often just a little fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. He wants you and me to bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. The word of God tends to clean us up. And brethren, most of you know this, but to the extent, and they're not converted, but even to the extent that people had the Bible and heard about the truth, any part of it all through the dark ages and middle ages, once Christ had come, they stopped in most places and fantasied. They regularly set the little girls out to freeze to death. Sometimes they set little boys and girls out. They wanted the men for warriors. They regularly had public sex orgies. They regularly did this and that in many of those societies. Once the word of God got there, they weren't converted, but it did convict their conscience, as scriptures say, like in John later on here. So it does have an effect. You're clean through the word, and to those who are converted are each much more clean. Abide in me, and I in you. You're to abide in Christ, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. We can't do anything. I can't do anything. I deeply understand that. I know David John Hill preached a sermon years ago about prayer. Most of you don't know him, but you might have heard of him, one of our earlier evangelists who died a number of years ago. But it was very colorful. He was a very colorful personality. And I won't try to go through the whole thing the way he did. I couldn't even if I wanted to. I don't have his personality. But he described if he went out of the house without praying, it was like you're getting up and shaving and, and you know, eating breakfast and walking out absolutely naked. Oh, you're naked. Well, I'm naked. You're We'd be naked. Your people, your neighbors would see you. Well, that's the way it is if you go out of the house without praying in a sense. If you walk around without praying, you're walking around spiritually naked. If you walk around without studying God's Word, in a sense, you're spiritually naked. You don't think about it that way. You have a lot more concern about putting on your clothes and combing your hair and fixing yourself up, many people, than prayer and study. But they're spiritually naked if they don't put that first. And we've got to put that first, every one of us, if we expect to have a good position in the kingdom of God. So as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. You've got to abide in Christ, walk with Christ, talk with Christ, commune with Christ, have him live in you. I'm crucified with Christ, as Mr. Pereira is saying. We must have that in our hearts and our lives. I am the vine. You are the branches. Each one of us is part of the tree of the thing that God is using he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Now, that's the key. He must live in us. And so we must walk with him for him to live in us. And then we will do what? We won't just be nice church people. 
we will begin to have an impact individually and far more impact collectively. For without me, you can do nothing. You say, well, I could do something. I could brush my teeth and comb my hair and do all my job or whatever. Well, in one sense, you can. But in an, he's talking spiritually primarily. We realize that. You can't do anything spiritually. But if you're going to get super technical and say, well, I'm smarter than you, God. Technically, you're wrong. No, technically, God is right. God could take away your breath the next second. And then what are you going to do? Without me, you can do nothing, right? You can't breathe. You can't live. Your very mind God gives you with which you reason around God's law and water down God's way and make excuses to lie or to cheat or to, to lust after others beside your mate. You shouldn't even lust after your mate, of course, but have wrong thoughts in your mind. So you can do nothing apart from Christ. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. As I was telling our minister's group at our lunch the other day, I knew several, maybe 10 to 25, way back when at least, and I would tell my wife or one or two others on occasion, I very seldom said it because it wasn't important, and I should have said it, probably said it more than I should. But I would say about this big evangelist or this guy over here, this person in the church, this person is not converted. I just say, Honey, this person, I just re I just tell them about some things I've been seeing and I realized this individual was not converted, converted. And in every single one of those cases, I was right. Then there were some I thought were converted that turned out not to be converted. I don't know if there's anyone I thought wasn't converted that was converted. There might have been someone like that, but I don't know who they were. So many people, they don't have the fruits of the Spirit. And they can give good sermons, even as ministers, you know, or they can have a nice personality, or they can do this or do that, you know, they can be a pretty woman or a nice man with a good personality or successful in his business. But unless you see they're producing spiritual fruit, you know, spiritual fruit, then you know they're not really converted. And, of course, that has to be demonstrated over a period of time. So anyway, he says in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words, that's why we have to study God's word to feed on Christ. My words abide in you. You will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. That is, if you're filled with God's word, then you'll think like God. You'll ask according to God's word and faith comes by hearing the word of God. So you'll have faith if the word abides in you. You see all those aspects of it and more. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. He doesn't want us to bear just a little bit of fruit, brethren. Please don't set that kind of standard for yourself. Set a high standard. And then if you miss the high standard, you know, maybe maybe this is passing here at the, at the uh, microphone, if I may look at it that way, like the standard is like this. So if you set a high standard and then you don't quite make it, you just make this standard, you still have a passing grade. But if you set the standard right at the lower level, Okay, I can barely get through with a C minus. If you have that attitude, you'll probably end up with a D or a D minus and you won't be there at all. Do you follow me? You've got to have a high standard to make it for your good. And I'm not trying to hurt any of you by saying these things. I'm not talking to any one of you individually. In fact, I have no one specifically in mind for this sermon. And I mean that. So let's understand that and realize we've got to be this way. He says down here again in verse 8, uh, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. 
He wants us to bear much fruit, each one of us. So you will be my disciples. So we need to have that as our standard. We need to have that as our goal. And we need to have Christ living powerfully within us. How? Well, frankly, we need to walk with God. You find back in Genesis, and there are many places, and I won't give them all. I've given a whole sermon on this several times through the years, but I'm not going to keep reading every scripture in the Bible that uses this phrase or similar phrase, or we'd be here a long time. But most of you have heard some of those sermons or perhaps read articles where we do that. But back in Genesis 5, he talks about Enoch, who's regarded as a prophet of God in the New Testament and referred to. Genesis chapter 5, verse 21, Enoch lived 65 years and they got Methuselah. Remember, Methuselah is the man that lived the longest, 969 years. Wow. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years. You get weary with well-doing? Okay, so do I sometimes. I don't think I do as much as some others because I've got a kind of a I don't know what it is, a natural zeal or something, but I don't, once in a while I'll think, well, just so long and I'm getting old and nice to just retire or sit in a rocking chair or just go to sleep or something. And I only think about that three to five seconds. And some say, no, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> and then I wake up again, come back to reality. But Enoch walked with God. Did he have his trials and tests? Did he have his down moments? Yes. He walked with God for 300 years. And it was a very wicked age when you read about it back then. Men were very violent and killing one another and all kinds of sexual problems too as was indicated very clearly by the scriptures in these early chapters. They had all kinds of rottenness. Human nature never changes in that sense. Enoch walked with God and so God took him and, and so on. And so that's the thing. Enoch then was a servant of God and walk with God. Over in the next chapter, chapter 6, notice in verse 5, then the eternal saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. So here is a time similar to our time, as Jesus describes, as in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man, you remember in the New Testament. Wickedness, very great, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And when you read all this stuff or see this stuff on BBC News that's taking place in Nigeria and in uh, Kenya and out in Afghanistan and even various parts of the United States and Canada and all over the world, yes, that's what we have. And so the eternal was sorry, he made man. He was grieved. So the eternal said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, birds of the air, for I'm sorry that I've made them. These folks can't seem to get anything straight. They want to kill. They want to hate. They want to compete and put each other down. They want to commit adultery and take others' wives. They want to ruin their families and ruin their children. They get drunk. Everything. I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the eternal. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah is a just man, perfect in his generation. Noah walked with God. That, of course, is the key. So he walked with God. And we, brethren, have got to walk with God. Now, I've preached whole sermons on that in years past, not recently. But I want to give a little bit more detail today rather than just saying walk with God to give you certain aspects of how to walk with God in today's society and in the very things that God has called us to do. How should we walk with God in our modern technological age? 
where you can push a button and see all this violence, push the computer button and see all this other rot and filth and everything else. In my 58 years in God's church, because I was baptized 58 years ago last month, I've seen a lot of things. I've seen a lot of evangelists, vice presidents of the work, leading members, deacons, deaconesses, and this and that fall away. I've seen their rotten way of life. I've seen people that were sort of look weak outwardly, and yet you found their heart was absolutely wonderful in the end because they were walking with God, and the fruit showed that, and they have an impact. So I don't know everything because of that, but I have found a lot of the answers to how to walk with God. And some of them are very basic. Let me review the basics. First of all, number one, if you're taking notes, things you've always known, really study the Bible. Don't just read this book. Read it thoughtfully, carefully. Think about it. Meditate about it. Read it again and again. Pour over it. Pray to God before you read it. And let God talk to you through this book and take correction from this book and get to know this book. That's the first thing. And that's where you ought to begin, because if you start talking to God in prayer, but you don't let God talk to you, you frankly don't know how to pray very much. You say, well, you know, I'm just praying to God. Well, the Catholic priests over here, and some of them during the Dark Ages, they chanted these Hail Marys, and they'd get up at 5 a.m. and blat this stuff out over and over. Is God pleased with that? No. They didn't know God as their father. They didn't know how to pray. They prayed to the wrong God, the wrong Christ, and many other Catholics, Protestants, misguided people all over the world do the same thing everywhere. Many of us did in the past, so let's not sit around condemning. We just didn't know how. How do you know the mind of God? How do you know how to pray? Get it from the Bible. And if you can get it from those of us who preach your sermons based on the Bible, and you don't just take our word for it, but you look it up, prove all things, then you're going to get it from the Bible in that way. So you've got to really study the Bible. Now, back in the Gospel of John, one of the most profound passages on that is back in John chapter 6, verses uh, 51 to 63. Now, I won't uh, read all that to take time today, but that's a passage that's wonderful about how we're to eat and drink of Jesus Christ. And so he concludes in verse 56, In seven, or partly concludes at least, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. How do you do that? Sounds like cannibalism. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. You have got to feed on Christ. And as he says down here in verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing, The words, Christ's message, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. So as you feed on Christ, feed on this word, then you begin to think like Christ. You begin to feel like Christ. You begin to have more of his mind. And to walk with God, you've got to do that. And brethren, I'd like to pause for one moment here too for a special comment, which you all know, but again, think about it. Be sure you constantly are aware of it. Whenever I say walk with God, I say walk with God and Christ. Jesus said, the Father and I are one. They're there together in every way. So we don't have to repeat both names every time, but sometimes we'll say Christ and some God, depending on the emphasis of the particular thought or situation. But they are one, totally one. 
Often a husband and wife are one in the sense they're one physically and live together and share their home and most of their hopes and dreams, but they're never as one as God the Father and Christ were a one because God and Christ have shared things together for several million or several billion years and they were both composed of the Holy Spirit. So I think we can understand they're far more together than even a very happily married couple. So they are one. And so when you walk with God, you walk with Christ. And so when you walk with Christ, you walk with God. Study the Word of God with all your heart. Secondly, meditate. I'm putting that next because it ties right in with study. And I think you know and should know how important that is. But again, that's one thing I think I have not done as much until recent years, and I'm learning to do more of it as I've gotten older. I used to just study and pray, and not perfectly, but tried to do that sort of thing. But you know, to sit down and just let your mind turn over and over what's really important and what's not important. Mr. Apartheid and I were having a wonderful lunch the other day and talking about the things that are really important. And we decided the most important thing would be to send my daughter Elizabeth down to Tasmania, I think is our, our, our conclusion. <laughs> I persecuted my daughter here. <laughs> no, we didn't talk about her at all, so you'd be happy. <laughs> But anyway, we were talking about what's really important in the work and what we really ought to be concentrating on. And I won't go through that today. I'm going to go through it with Mr. Ames and Winnell and Crockett and some of us with Dr. Dr. Apartheid, called <laughs> Mr. Apartheid. And uh, we're not all doctors. <laughs> but anyway, we need to do that, to meditate about what's really important. And Mr. Apartheid had been doing that. Psalm 119 is a scripture we ought to think, turn to. Maybe I mentioned that. God says here one of the most wonderful chapters in all the Bible, written by King David, no doubt, the man of God, Psalm 119. And it's not only one of the most wonderful chapters, it's the longest chapter in the Bible by far. <laughs> Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies who seek him with the whole heart. So that's the thing. We have to think about God's word and have our minds on that in a very profound way. And then you find over in verse 55, turn over to verse 55 of this long, long Psalm 119. I remember your name in the night, O Eternal. You see, David was walking with God. He related his blessings. He related his victories in battle. He related his sorrows. He related his diseases and the punishment he got from God. He related everything to God. He knew in him we live and move and have our being. Every part of his life he knew related to God. And he didn't have any hidden corner. A lot of us have a hidden corner of our lives. As I said, when I was Deputy Chancellor at Big Sandy from 1986 to 1989, about three and a half years, we had this big group and very enthusiastic and for a while we had the biggest church on earth because they didn't have it split up into morning and afternoon churches and we had 1,550 people uh, registered and about 1,400 of them came regularly. 1,400 people. A lot more than we have here. Over 10 times more. Great big church. But I began to hear rumors that at least three or four different men in the church, some of them were well-known, some might be newer, not known at all, but were beating their wives, literally taking their fist and beating their wives. But I didn't know who they were. And I got up and yelled at them, and I told you about that in the sermon. <laughs> and I said, I want to, you, you have guts. 
let me know and I'll come and talk to you. I said, I may bring my friend Joe Campbell with me. He was a, a championship linebacker on the Oakland Raiders when they won the Super Bowl. But, you know, but I was going to come nevertheless to their home or wherever we needed to meet them and talk to them. And they, none of them did. And some of the wives called, though, then. I had two different women call. My wife may remember that. Two different women called, and they were crying, and they wouldn't tell me who they were. They said, if we tell you who we are, and you go after a husband, he'll just beat us all the more, and nothing will happen. In the church of God. So we have to understand, people are very rotten. And they're not all walking with God. They have their nice, their nice church people. But David related everything to God. I remember your name in the night, O Eternal. I keep your law. This has become mine because I keep your precepts. And so he constantly thought about God day and night. Many other scriptures say that. I'm just reading the ones that happen to be handy here in this chapter. Notice now verse 97, Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how love I like your law. This is my meditation all the day. Wow, all day long, David thought on God's law. Well, I don't think he sat down going over the words of the law all day long. He had a lot on his mind. But all through the day, because he was walking with God, he would remember that this is what he ought to do. He ought to make this judgment because of that principle in the Bible. He ought to do this or that. You see, what about Bathsheba? Yes, David made one great, huge mistake, and it was awful, awful. But the thing of it is, most of us don't fully get that. As I've said later, God himself said that only, only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite did David ever turn aside from what God directly commanded him to do. So he may have had some little faults, but only only one big sin, and that was it. And he bitterly repented of that and fasted and fasted, just fell right on the ground for seven days, ate nothing, cried out to God. So he did make one mistake, but overall, he was a magnificent example it's my meditation off and on all the day. What would God want me to do? And brethren, think about this too, by the way, if I fail to mention it later. Whenever you think about praying, whenever you think about studying, whenever you think about meditating, whenever you think about what should you do, you know, lots of people in the world talk about these ideas. If you read these Christian so-called articles, and they had one in the paper this morning in the Carolina Living, they always have the religious section. This guy has this idea and it's kind of amusing. My, my wife started laughing at the last part of it. It's so silly, some of his ideas. But they think they're doing Christian stuff. And the thing of it is, we need to ask, as I preached weeks ago, what would Jesus, I've added a word to the normal, what would Jesus really do? Not what do we think Jesus would do? What would he really do? And you know what he would really do by reading all four Gospels and in fact reading the whole Bible because he's the one who inspired the Bible. He is the Word, the Logos, and God inspired the Bible through him. And when you drink in of his words, including this right here, then you would begin to understand what Jesus would really do. Not just imagine it in various situations. This man said, well, if Jesus came back to earth now, what would he do And I don't remember all the silly stuff he said, but one thing, well, he would go straight to Darfur and he would say, well, you know, you, you bad guys, if, if you're going to kill these people, you kill me first. Bang, you're dead. Well, that would be the end of Jesus' second coming. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? But anyway, he, he doesn't act like that. And, uh, but anyway, they don't understand. And so they have come up with all these ideas. 
I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for you, for your testimonies are my meditation. Constantly meditating. Read the Bible. How does this apply to me? Something bad happens in your life. I've had a lot of things bad happen in my life. I remember one time back in 1959, I'd just been given a big office responsibility about a year earlier, and I wasn't going around like some of these guys that point themselves a prophet or apostle or something we've had more recently, but I was walking kind of high. I do remember that, thinking I'll do more of this, more of that, and I was taking more load on one thing and the other, and all of a sudden, God let me get a terrible cold, and I partly brought it on myself by eating a lot of ice cream. I loved ice cream. And blowing my nose, and I got a middle ear infection. And that was the sickest I've ever been since the day I was born. For about one week or ten days, I was hurting and hurting and hurting. And finally, in the middle of the night, my wife called Mr. Armstrong because I was really climbing the walls. And Mr. Armstrong prayed for me about 2 or 3 a.m. And the pain then went away, but I felt something happen. But God didn't just heal me. He did allow the inner ear right then, though, on mercy, to burst. So both eardrums were ruptured, and then they healed over, of course. But then the doctor told me, Dr. Merrill, he said, uh, you know, he said, well, he said, you, 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 the pain is taken away, but he says that your eardrums will thicken, and later on you'll probably be hard of hearing. And sure enough, I am. And my mother was similar and hard of hearing. But anyway, uh, God humbled me through that. Man, I lost way down. And if any of you ever see a picture of me at my uncle Dr. C. Paul's wedding, I look like a survivor of the Baton Death March. Well, during that week or ten days when I was just really down, and then following five or seven weeks, I was way underweight, weak physically, and when I'd counsel someone for baptism, I even had others do the baptizing, because if I got in the water, it was during the winter, I would start sneezing, and I didn't want to come down with something again. So I would just stand there and have them. I was just weak physically for about two months. And during that two months, I read this psalm over and over again, where David says in a number of ways that he learned from God's chastening, and God humbled him and taught him lessons. So we need to meditate when things that bad happen. Why has God let something bad happen? What lesson can I learn from this? What lesson can I learn from this? And when God has blessed us, we don't want to get the big head. We realize everyone who gets the big head is in trouble. He who exalts himself shall be abased, Jesus said over and over. But you can be grateful and give God thanks. So I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You through your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Constantly he thought on that. I might even turn back to that one section I read. I just, I didn't have that in my notes, but I'll give you this verse here for free <laughs> in the sermon. Back in verse 67, I remember reading this a lot during that time. He said, David said, before I was afflicted. Well, I was afflicted with a horrible ear infection. It just, my eardrums hurt and finally burst. I went astray. We do things that we wouldn't do otherwise. I wasn't getting drunk or killing. I just had vanity. But now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The proud affords the lie against me, but I will keep your precepts and so forth. He said down in verse 71, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, 
that I may learn your statutes. So over and over, David talks about his willingness to learn when things go wrong. You learn by prayer and study, and you learn by meditation, letting your mind learn the lesson, whatever lesson God has. So learn to profoundly study the Bible. Learn to thoughtfully meditate on God's Word, on God's law, on God's way, on the things in your life and the relationship with God and God's purpose. And then, of course, learn to pray with all your heart. That's the third key that we've always given. Learn to pray. And back in Psalm 55, uh, again, something, of course, just since I'm here, I'll turn to this one. It's a little closer. But many times it tells us to pray uh, all through the day. But in Psalm 55, while well, we have the example of, again, the man after God's own heart, King David of Israel. And David said in Psalm chapter 55 and beginning in verse 16, As for me, I will call upon God, as the, and the eternal shall save me. Evening, morning, and at noon, I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. And I don't always do this perfectly, so I'm not trying to say that. I'm telling you what to do, and I'm preaching to myself. I try to pray every morning and every night, very seldom. Once in a while, I don't pray at all during the day, but I've tried to learn to pray in the middle of the day as well. And sometimes I don't have a chance to drop to the knees, but at least for two or three minutes, I could even stand. God talks about when you stand praying or when even sitting. David came in and sat before the eternal. You can pray, even if it's just, you know, 90 seconds or three or four minutes, and talk to God profoundly. I don't mean some 10-second prayer, but in the middle of the day. And you need to do that. That's what David did. That's what Daniel did. You know, Daniel 6, verse 10, if you want another reference. Daniel 6, verse 10, he prayed three times a day, and so on. All through the day. When Mr. Armstrong was recuperating from his massive heart failure, and some of us were going over to Tucson to visit him, and then old Mr. Party did a number of times as well. Mr. Armstrong told me once or twice, and I was not hard of hearing at that time, so I heard him. <laughs> he said, Rod, when I was recuperating, I cried out to God because I knew I'd made mistakes, and God let these things happen to me. And he said, I prayed 30 to 60 times a day. He was not on his knees. He was lying there. He just prayed to God. Then he'd think and study and meditate. Then he'd pray to God again and then pray to God again. 60 to 30 to 60 times a day because he was thinking about God all day long. And certainly we need to do that when God is dealing with us in some special way. But at the very least, it's not the maximum, it's the minimum. We need to learn to profoundly pray at least three times a day. And I say profoundly, he said, evening, morning, at noon, I will pray and cry aloud. And my friend Mordecai Joseph was our Hebrew teacher at the college for a while, grew up speaking Hebrew and studied biblical Hebrew with some rabbis and so on. And he said often when you read these sections in the Old Testament or in, even in the New Testament where Jesus cried, he says that, you know, as I explained to you, they didn't have microphones back then. <laughs> and also he wasn't, of course, in this case, crying to people, but to God. It means they really virtually yelled. David was crying out with his being to God. And Mr. Armstrong himself said one of the greatest weaknesses of God's people in prayer, he said, is they do not put their hearts in their prayers. And I know when I was in the world, that's the way I was. My father and mother helped put me to bed and they'd kneel down with me as a little boy and I say my prayers. Now lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep blah, blah, blah. 
bless Patty, bless Catherine, bless Poochie, who was the dog, <laughs> and so on, and this little quiet prayer and go to sleep. A little child doesn't understand, but when you're called of God, you're calling, talk, talking to the governor of the universe, and you better put your heart in your prayer, fervent prayer. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, we read in James 5, 16. So pray with your heart. The fourth key foundational principle, of course, is fasting. And God certainly encourages to fast. Jesus talked about that his disciples did not fast like the Pharisees in one of those accounts, but he said, when I'm gone, then they will fast in those days. And you find an example of fasting among many, many, many others back here in Daniel. It talks about in Daniel 9, in the first year of Darius, the son of Herazarius, in the first year, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of years specified in the word of the Lord through Jeremiah that Jerusalem would be under siege, of course, in desolation. Seventy years. It was getting near the end of that time. People were discouraged. They were cast down. So Daniel begins to cry out to God. Then I set my face toward the eternal God to make requests by prayer. That's yes, a prayer. And supplication means repeated, humble, heartfelt prayers. And fasting. He did them all. Fasting. Sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the eternal and made my confession. Cried out to God, no doubt, with all of his being. And at the end of that prayer, and no doubt other prayers during that time, then this angel comes to him and said in verse 22, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give, to give you skill to understand at the beginning of your supplications. God understood. He was there all the time. But when you first started to pray and fast and eat no food and cry out to God with your being at the beginning, the commandment went out. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Consider the matter and understand the vision. And then he gave him this marvelous 70 weeks prophecy that we understand. After prayer, meditation, and profound fasting. Fast before God. Learn to do that regularly. If you're sick or think you're weak or something, get a checkup. But a lot of us up in our 70s or 80s or whatever are still fasting regularly. And I know that most of you can too. Use it as a tool, not just on the Day of Atonement. I just recommend that you fast about one day a month. When I've been in terrible straits, I will fast two or three times a month. But normally maybe once a month is a good average. Fast before God. And during that fast, don't just miss food. That's not the point. Set aside time to spend extra time studying, extra time meditating. Say, Father, I'm taking talk from work. I'm studying. Please show me how I can do better. What's wrong? What's wrong? Why are we not growing faster? Why am I not growing more? Teach me your ways. Lead me in your paths. And have that attitude of seeking God during that fast and get an extra Bible study, extra meditation, extra prayer while you fast, and then the fast will do you a lot of good. Just missing a meal won't do you necessarily any good spiritually, but fast regularly and with purpose. Then, brethren, walk with God. Use the strength, the spiritual strength that you should have gained from fervent Bible study, heartfelt meditation, you know, and prayer, fervent prayer, and fasting. Use that spiritual strength to walk with God and commune with God and let God's Spirit flow through you 
Turn back then to 1 John, if you would, at this point, near the end of your uh, New Testament here, 1 John, and we'll read chapter 1, which is one of my favorite chapters, so you'll get that from time to time. <laughs> 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, looked upon our hands of handle concerning the word of life. We were there. We saw Jesus. We handled him. The life was manifested, and we, we apostles, we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, that personality that had been with God from all eternity, which was with the Father and manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. We can have fellowship with the apostles in a sense, spiritually. And truly, our fellowship, though, our main fellowship, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We don't have direct fellowship with Peter and James and John now. We will later in the resurrection, but we have with their attitude, of course, and what they stood for. But we will personally later if we make it. Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Yes, God. God means God and God means Christ too. Mr. Armstrong always said, our fellowship is with God and then through God and through Christ with one another. You see, it has to be, we have to be joined to God, and then the spiritual fellowship is because of that. I used to have wonderful fellowship with Jimmy Porter and, and uh, Jack Montaldo and Ducky McPherson and Ronnie Kendall and all these guys that I grew up with, and that was wonderful. We had a lot of fun and so on, and lo loved each other as little boys growing up. But now I seldom hear from them and I seldom communicate with them. I have a different life. And they know that and, and they're busy too and haven't seen me for years. My fellowship now is with those who have their hearts in God's work. And I have a more profound communion with them on a deeper level than I ever did with my friends. Although you always had friends and that's good that you have them, but not that kind of fellowship. The fellowship we have with one another is through God and through Christ. And our profound fellowship with one another can be even deeper, even though we come from different backgrounds, let's say intellectually, academically, financially, racially, culturally, whatever you want to say. As I may have given you this example before, and I really mean it, I said a number of times, and I meant it with my being, if I were stranded on a desert island, as I said back several years ago, two or three or ten times, and I would rather have been stranded on the desert island with Mr. Harold Jackson, our black elder, than I would have with our, my worldly relatives. Because what would I talk with my worldly relatives about? After a few minutes or hours, there's nothing to talk about. With Mr. Jackson, he and I had friendship on the highest level for decades. And I helped him come in the church back in 1952 when I started the church in in uh, San Diego in September 52 and Bert Manair and I baptized his wife. She'd never been baptized properly, but we didn't baptize him because he had been baptized by a branch of the Sardis church and he really meant it. But he wasn't sure and he wanted always to be sure so we kept bringing it up and finally we brought it all the way to Mr. Armstrong and Mr. Armstrong, Mr. Jackson, whenever you learn new truth you acted upon it and you are a converted man. And I felt that way too and many of us did but he had a very deep conversion. So any what our background is it doesn't make any difference. If we're really converted we can have a profound fellowship with one another. 
And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, brethren, we know we'll make mistakes, but don't plan to make mistakes. We're to walk with God and in him is no darkness at all. So you don't say, well, I'll make some mistakes and God understands and I'll go ahead and make it. No, don't go ahead and make them anyway. Try with all your heart not to make them. You'll make a lot fewer because if you walk with God in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, some of you make mistakes. That doesn't mean you walk in darkness. It just means you've made that particular mistake and you can repent of it. But if you keep on making mistakes, if you keep on lusting or hating or lying or committing adultery or getting drunk or whatever it is, then you are walking in darkness. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us. You see, it's a process. We grow in grace and in knowledge. It cleanses us from all sin, not part of our sins, from all of our sins as we walk with God. So we've got to learn to walk with God in all these ways. So try to think, brethren, about your focus, about your whole purpose in life. As I preached a couple of weeks ago, what is the most important thing in life? What do you focus upon? What do you think about all day long? Worldly things or the things of God? Think about your fear. Do you honestly have a godly fear? Some in God's church don't. They go ahead and sin and they'll sin again and again and again. They don't have the fear of God. Abraham on one occasion did something. I kind of told the people that his wife was his sister, which she was kind of his half-sister, was kind of a white lie. He said, I didn't, I, I didn't think the fear of God was in this place. <laughs> you know, It's good to know the fear of God is there. A person has an awareness of God and they're able to repent. You need to think about that, even when we're a leader in the church. For me, for anyone, the evangelist doesn't make any difference. We have to have the fear of God as long as we're in this life, that right kind of fear, a, a, a healthy respect that we can't mess around. God doesn't want you to mess around and he doesn't want me to mess around and tell half-truths and just partly lust or partly hate or partly whatever. Think about your purity. Are you really pure? Blessed are the pure, for they shall see God. You see, it doesn't mean just sexually pure. That's certainly the main way, one of the main ways to be pure, of course. Don't mess around and think of others besides your mate. But it's talking about the pure heartedness that you want to do something because you know it's the right thing to do. When you compromise, when you let down, well, yeah, but. But what? You want to be in the lake of fire? Do you want to be in God's kingdom? You see, blessed are the pure. Don't mess around. Be sure your attitude is clean. Your motives are right. I want to give a good broadcast, a good telecast. Why? So I can be the great Rod Meredith and get my name in headlines or this or that? I'd better not have that attitude or God will get rid of me. I better realize, as we did when we first started the work, they're not doing it. We've got to start over. We've got to somehow get the work going again and reach this world. Do I get all nervous when I get up to preach or give a telecast? Frankly, not at all. I think Mr. Davis knows that. He's hearing me regularly. I'm not. Why? 
Well, I don't do it perfectly, so again, but I'm basically not thinking about myself. I'm thinking about the people out there. I picture the audience. We've got to reach them. And then I think once in a while, I know, well, am I the greatest telecaster? No, all kinds of worldly guys have better personalities, better appearance, better voices, better this and that. They're charming. And even in our work, Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, Ames does a better job. He prepares more thoroughly. He has more of these uh, inserts and this and that. And he's a wonderful telecaster. And I can't spend five seconds being jealous of him, whom I love. And I haven't spent five seconds that way. Don't intend to. So Mr. Ames is my superior and bringing in bigger responses generally than I do. Dr. Winnale is my superior in understanding uh, certain historical things and writing certain kinds of articles that I could not write. I'm just not able to do that. And Mr. Partian can understand certain international situations and foreign languages better than me and certain principles of wisdom because of his years of age better than me. Mr. Crockett can understand business aspects and how to deal with certain aspects of situations like that better than me, and different ones have their strengths. Young Josh Beatty back here is young enough almost to be my uh, grandson. I guess Josh is here. I see Josh Penman, but is Josh Beatty here? Josh, there he is. I'm sorry, looking right over your head. But uh, he's, uh, uh, he's not just 100. I think he's 500 times smarter than we in computers, since I know nothing. <laughs> he's, he's 500. No, I know something, but, you know, he, that's his expertise. So that's fine. Each of us has our strengths. But we'd better try to be pure in heart to do what we can do best with God's help and do it to want to get the work going, to prepare for God's kingdom, to honor God with whatever God gives us. So we want to do those things in the right way and for the right attitude. So think about purity and then think about self-discipline. It's another thing you've got to think about. Because we've got to learn not to just think, well, we're going to have right attitudes and all that. Well, it goes beyond that. Turn with me back to the book of Galatians, if you would. Turn back to the book of Galatians. God wants a good attitude. And I've been talking about it. But you know, you're not going to have a good attitude unless you do certain things. You can have, uh, want to have a good build. When I was a young boy, I used to think about I'd like to be six foot three and weigh 225 pounds. And I had it all pictured and I see these, uh, uh, some of you come to my study. My wife has thoughtfully put up this, this one old strength and health magazine. Remember, honey, this guy standing there? Well, I, I never got to look like that. How come? Well, I didn't put it first, thankfully. I kept, kept running the mile and other things, but I'm just not made that way. And so I, I, that was obviously became not the most important thing uh, in my life. But on the other hand, I wanted to be that. I thought about it, but you've got to do more than think about it. You've got to do like Arnold Schwarzenegger and work out, and work out, and work out, and work out, and maybe even take steroids on the side and everything else, and make that your passion in life, then maybe you can have all these muscles. And then when some really heavy object comes along, you can go up there and you can't lift it, or you'll pull your back, and some little skinny guy will bring a forklift and he will lift it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, that's the way it is. Turn back to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and here he says in this 22nd verse, he says, the fruit of the Spirit, the result of God's Holy Spirit is love. That's the most important thing, to love God with all your being and to learn to conscientiously, thoughtfully, prayerfully think that through how to do it, love your neighbor as yourself. How can you best love your neighbor as yourself? Joy. 
You ought to have joy if you're walking with God, a depth of a peace of mind because you know you haven't been compromising. You haven't been doing funny stuff. You're weak, but you still are trying, and you know God knows that, and trying hard. Peace, you have peace of mind. Long-suffering, don't get your feelings hurt so quick. Kindness, have a sense of kindness toward others. Goodness, genuinely good, being God's law. Faithfulness, don't give up and quit. Hang in there, faithfulness and trust in God. Gentleness, not harshness and being the tough guy. Self-control, against such there is no law. Self-control. If you don't have self-control and all these other things, of course, too, then you won't make it into God's kingdom. And nearly every successful human being in any background, and I've read many, many dozens of autobiographies or biographies about great men and women, and nearly every great man and woman you read about has quite a degree of self-control. They have a goal, and they drive themselves toward that goal. And as Peter Drucker points out in his book, The Effective Executive, the top executives are ones who hoard. He uses the term hoard time. They hoard their time. They don't waste their time. They know time is a precious commodity. You can't just go wandering around and letting the time go every day. You've got to use the time and use that time and your energy, your talents, your resources, your physical strength, your contacts, your money, yes, everything you have toward the kingdom of God. Use it. Use it the best way you can. I don't apologize for telling you that. We have wealthy people in God's church, and some are generous and some are not at all. God is watching. I'm not watching. I don't know who they all are, but God does. And if you're not generous with God, why in the world do you think God should be generous with you if you are not generous with your very creator who gives you life and breath? So anyway, we want to think about all those things. Self-control. You've got to learn to control yourself. And you've got to discipline yourself then to study or you won't study. You've got to discipline yourself to pray regularly. You've got to discipline yourself to meditate on God's Word. You've got to discipline yourself to fast. You say, well, I don't like to fast. Well, I don't like to fast either. Do you think I love to fast and do without and get a headache and feel tired? No. And I say, Rod, it's time for you to fast. You'd better fast. You're going to fast, and that's it. And so I fast. So you could fast and check up with your doctor if you think you'll die. You will die anyway. <laughs> you will die anyway. <laughs> you might die sooner if you, if you fast, if you have some serious heart problem. But most of you are going to die sooner if you don't fast, frankly, because you're not going to be close to God, and you might not be protected in the Great Tribulation. So discipline yourself to make yourself walk with God, to do those basic things, those four steps. Study, meditation, prayer, and fasting, and then also to make yourself get in the habit of being a giver. Are you a giver or a getter? Mr. Armstrong used to talk about the two types of people. Some are givers and some are getters. And we're not just talking about money. We're talking about your whole way of life. Some have very little to give in the sense of money, but they give their lives to God. Turn to Philippians chapter 2, if you would, at this point. Philippians chapter 2. Paul says in verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Don't think about self, self, self all the time, or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than himself. 
Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but the interest of others. Think about giving. How can you help others? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Christ had everything. He was surrounded by 100 million angels at least, when you read the book of Revelation, surrounded by the four living creatures, the 24 elders, the sea of glass, magnificent glory. What did he do? He came down to this earth and let men curse him, hit him, slap him, say, come on, Smarlick, if you're the son of God, prophesy who hit you when they put a blindfold on him. You read that. Just read all four Gospels. Those things happened at the end of his life. And finally, took him out there, nailed him up to a stake, drove great spikes into his arms, his hands and feet, and he hung there rotting in the sun. Why? In order to give. In order that you and I could have the opportunity to share with him and with the Father eternal life. He gave the ultimate price in the sense not just death. Other men, other men had died, but no one has remotely given up what he gave up to come down from heaven to do that with men who were cursing him every step of the way. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robber to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, or as you know, the Greek means emptied himself. All scholars agree. He emptied himself of the power, the glory, the magnificence that he'd had before with the Father, taking the form of a bond slave, a doulos, and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, not just death, but one of the most slow, humiliating, agonizing deaths that's ever been invented by depraved humanity under the influence of Satan. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on the earth, and those under the earth. Tremendous glory, magnificence, forever, forever, because he was willing to give. Jesus said, Acts 20, verse 35, Acts 20, verse 35, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And brethren, if we are going to walk with God and have the mind of Christ, then if we have this mind which is in Christ who is willing to give himself to serve people all day long, and then at the end of all that giving for 33 and a half years, let himself be nailed up there, we will be givers, givers, givers with every fiber of our being, every way we can give. That's the point. And God will bless us forever because of that. So we've got to understand that and have that way of walking with God. Back in John chapter 4, if you turn back there for a moment, it's a familiar passage, but it's very important in this context. John 4, when he was asked about taking something to eat, then it says in verse 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's my Mr. Apartian helped me on this, raison de terre, something similar to that. <laughs> reason for being. My reason for being is to do God's work. And all of us ought to have a part. You say, well, you're in the work full time. So I understand that. You can't necessarily all think about every detail of it to the same degree I can. But a lot of you can have your reason for being to be a Christian to help others, to have your heart in the work in the best way you can where you are and God is watching. So my reason for being, my food, the thing that gives me strength, 
is to do God's work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they're already white for the harvest. All kinds of people out there need God's word. They need it desperately right now, brethren, and we're beginning to get it out. Mr. O'Gwen and, and Mark Smith and others are helping. Mr. Crockett is advising, and others are helping in a special way. with The Internet, getting it all over this earth, and we're going to get it with increasing power behind the bamboo curtain into China behind the Muslim curtain into the Middle East and all over. And we've got to do more of that. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Yes, God will give you wages. God will give you a reward forever and ever and ever. Does that mean anything if you give your life to God? And so you need to think, how can I best use my time, each one of you, and meditate on that, how can I best use my talents? How can I best use my energies that he gives me? How can I best use my resources? And some of you may have a lot of financial resources you could help God's work with very much at this time to help us get on. We need to get on black entertainment television, frankly. A way has been opened where we can get on that reaching over 84 million households. And we're going to do a test on it as the next uh, Sunday, a week from tomorrow, I guess see what it is. But it's a tremendous opportunity. If we have some really big givers, we could do that. We would like to buy this building across the streets for sale, and then we would have a, a, our own even bigger, better auditorium and interactive television studio, and we could use it for the Living University. Do you want to help the Living University really get going? Do you want to help us? And you brethren out there who hear this, I'm not just preaching to our church here. A lot of you could give a lot more if you wanted to. But a lot of us could give a lot more of our personal time in the sense of our prayers, our help to one another, and give our lives to God more than we are in every way. So we need to think, how can we do more? How can you each help us to do more? How can I help us do more on television, radio, literature, that is the Tomorrow's World, the booklets, the correspondence course, the Internet, Living University, our local churches, our public Bible lectures. Have your mind on that. That's going on all over this earth. How can each one of you help do that more and you brethren around the world? This work must move forward. We've got to have an impact on this world. No one else is doing it just the way we are. I don't feel like we're the best and we're the, you know, whatever ourselves, but God has enabled us to have that vision and to do that, we could be thankful and realize we have that challenge. We have that challenge but before us. We can have tremendous impact if we just will. I know there are men out there in the world who've helped us so much, not in the world, but in the church that are not full-time. I think of Mr. Big Ben, we call him Whitfield out west. He has his insurance company part of the time, and for years he was helping driving all over Montana or Wyoming, I mean, and everybody knows Big Ben because he's so big and friendly. And he sold insurance to about half the state. I'm kidding. But he got to know people because of that. But he's been giving of himself, helping and visiting and serving for years with no salary. Finally, we gave him some expense. And I think now we're giving him a small salary. But he's just helping because he wants to help. Before he came here, Mr. Crockett was the same way. Had his own business. Was out all over Arkansas and over to Memphis, Tennessee, giving. And still giving generous offerings beside, as Big Ben does. We have men like Mr. Dexter Wakefield down here, our elder in Florida, doing the same thing, visiting all over that part of Florida, has his own business, 
and just giving and giving and giving in every way. We have Mr. Vanderbile and uh, our other leaders in South Africa who are giving of themselves, having their own office often, their own uh, job, going above and beyond, you see, and helping and building the work of God through generous tithes and offerings, through time, through energy, through visiting, through helping in churches over and over. I will never forget the outstanding gifts we got to help us be here. Mr. Raymond Jorgensen, the bachelor farmer back in Iowa, you know, kind of a unknown man, never heard of him before, but I'll never forget him now, and I'm sure Christ won't, because when he died, his brother had already died, neither were married or had children, and he gave us everything. He gave us his farm, the equipment, everything, and it turned out to be nearly one million dollars. Nine hundred and some hundred thousand dollars. That man. Just at the time, we were asking God, Father, help us get the money to come back to Charlotte. And we were praying, thinking we should move, get out of that expensive area in San Diego. And then at the very same time, God put it on the heart of Mrs. Bennett over in Nashville and Mrs. Webster over in Kansas City. They didn't give us near that much, but they gave us generously with what they had. And Mrs. Bennett gave us everything. Her husband had died. She gave us her home, her property, and so on. Some of you should think about that. You brethren around the world, put us in your will. And it's not us. Put the work of the living Christ in your will because God is God. I can't give you anything, but God can give you everything. God can give you everything if you put him first. If you go all out to have an impact in the work of the great God. I always remember how so many ladies, and I could mention many of them, and men too, but one in my early years that I'll never forget was named Chloe Shippard. My wife will get tired of hearing this because I use this example in front of her, but I say she may not get tired, but I just, you know, she's heard it, but I can't help it. Chloe Shippard was one of the early ladies in the church, came in back in 1936, helping Mr. Armstrong in the church in Eugene and up in Portland, and this was up in Portland in her case. And she would give and give and give, and she would take food to the people that were sick, She'd write notes to those who were downcast or to new people or this or that. When I was there as a young preacher, and I didn't, I wasn't a very good preacher at all, I'm sure, looking back. I was just learning. I got Mr. Armstrong, get, let, me, let me go up there, and I practiced on the church. And every single week, I'd get this note from Mrs. Shippard. She was the age of my mother, I think just a few years older, actually, but very zealous. Oh, Mr. Meredith. Well, I was just a kid. She could have called me Rod, but she was respecting the ministry. Mr. Meredith, we... We, we love you so much, and we are so inspired by the wonderful sermons you're giving. Well, I look back at some of the old notes, and I didn't really begin to cover the material I do today, and I was just a kid learning. But she was encouraging me every single week, and then she'd call and try to help occasionally. And she'd call, I found out from others, not just from her. She'd find a lady that had just had a baby, and she'd go out to the house and help them and take care of them and their child. Things all through the church, and she'd take food to people giving, helping, serving. She'd be kind of, kind of a local legend, Chloe Shippard. Okay, God will not ever forget her, and I will never forget her. How can you give? You can give in a hundred different ways. How can you give? How can you prepare for the kingdom of God? How can you have an impact? So each of us, brethren, needs to think about that and do the very, very best we can in that way, in every possible way to prepare for God's kingdom to lay down our lives for Jesus Christ 
and to walk with Christ, walk with God, and in that way have an impact far beyond anything we could do of and by ourselves. Turn back again, if you would, to Galatians chapter 2. Turn again to Galatians chapter 2 here uh, in your Bible. And here we find uh, this. Uh, I'm in Philippians 2. I guess I'm kind of tired here at the end of this uh, thing. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes here in verse 4, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. And brethren, that includes, as you know, the people in India and China. When you read about these horrible things in Darfur or Nigeria or elsewhere, Afghanistan, Pakistan, think about these are human beings. They need the kingdom of God. We need to get the message to them. How can we do that? How can we do that? And how can I prepare better to teach them in love and wisdom in tomorrow's world? How can I do that? How can I prepare? So have your mind on those things every way you can to walk with God, walk with Christ, have Him living His life in you. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who emptied Himself who gave and gave and gave and gave and kept on giving till finally he gave his life. And then, verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. And I assure you in Christ's name, if you learn to give your life and if you learn to walk with God with all your hearts and walk with Christ and have them living within you and producing much fruit, God will give you a name, an office, a glory, an opportunity, a joy, a lasting reward that will last throughout all eternity, world without end.